So we're in uh, John chapter 6, and we'll be reading verses 1 to 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to bribe bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in this place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in a number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them as, as, uh, to those who were seated. Uh, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come in the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So my wife and I moved into the parsonage, I think it was about uh, late spring of 2018. And uh, when we moved in, we noticed a lot of different smells. Uh, The person who was there before kind of had a bunch of animals and it was... Uh, just kind of a disaster when we first got there. So we had to spend a long time cleaning it up. Um, but shortly after we got there, we noticed the smell in the basement. And uh, this smell is after, you know, we had bleached everything, painted all the walls, painted the floors, but there's still this smell. But the smell only came at certain times. Like we noticed that it came when we were doing laundry or maybe doing a lot of laundry or when the dishwasher was running. And, you know, I looked for any possible source of this smell for quite some time and never noticed anything. There were no clogged drains. There was no, you know, garbage anywhere. There was no source of this smell. Then several months later, we start noticing these little flies in the basement. They're called drain flies. If you've never seen a drain fly, you're very lucky. They're kind of similar to a fruit fly, but a little bit bigger, and they're blind, and they feed on sewage, and they just kind of come out, live for a few days, and then die, lay their eggs, and whatever. So first, there's just a couple of them. I think, hmm, that's weird. You know, take a fly swatter, kill a few of them, and then there's more and more and more. So I'm just kind of in avoidance mode. I'm like, I don't know where these bugs are coming from. I don't want to deal with this. So for a while, I just let it go, and they just keep multiplying. And finally, I'm like, I got to deal with this. And so I'm like, I got to wage war on these bugs. So I got the fly swatter. I got these electric zappers. I put them in all the outlets. I have fly tapes. And I'm doing everything I can to destroy these bugs. And I killed hundreds of them. And then the next day, I would come back, and there would be hundreds more. That's not good. So again, I don't know what to do. I don't know if I'm supposed to call an exterminator or a plumber or who to talk to. I I think I even talked to an exterminator. They're like, well, you know, they're tough to deal with. You know, there's not a lot you can do. Thanks. Thanks a lot. That helps. But 
So I'm trying to figure out what to do, and finally I realize the source of where they're coming from. They're coming out of the French drain. There's this uh, drain going around the edges of the basement, and there's a gap between the ceiling and the floor. And I've noticed they're kind of coming out of there and hanging in there. So I do some research online, and, and they you know, say they like sewage. They like things that are wet and dirty. And so I decided I'm going to try to you know, kind of flush the, the, the drain all the way around. And so I get vinegar. I get bleach, a lot of bleach. I get this ortho home defense. I spray all of that around the next day. There's more back again. So I'm like, I don't have any idea what to do. Finally, I just kind of sealed off all the French drain. I put duct tape all around the drain. It, it was kind of putting a Band-Aid over the problem, but I didn't know how to fix it. You know, and anytime there was any kind of gap, they would just fly up. But at least there wasn't as many coming out. Then sometime after that, I called a plumber. And the plumber comes, and he figured out what the issue was. It turns out that the main sewer line to my house was backed up, and it had been packed up probably for years, and uh, there was a, a drain tile that went around in the floor of my basement, and that drain tile was improperly installed, and so what was happening was the main sewer line was backing up, and then the, sewer was, the sewage was backing up into the drain tile and basically going all the way around the basement in the pipes and then that sewage was seeping out into the French drain so it was a huge ordeal they had to you know put the whole snake in and, and clean the main line and then had to clean all these subsidiary lines and flush it with water flush it with bleach put Drano in there it was just a disaster to deal with you know and I think back on that and you know there's sewage all around the basement uh, you know underneath I obviously couldn't see it, but underneath in these pipes, leaching out into the French drain, and here I am with a gallon of bleach trying to bleach the sewage. It, it was literally pouring money down the drain. I think that's similar to sometimes how we feel in life. There's so many issues in our life that are big issues. Issues that are Issues that maybe we don't control. Issues that seem so large that it seems that our best efforts are like me pouring bleach down the drain. That there's nothing that we can do in our own strength to fix these issues. Maybe sometimes it feels like we can't make a difference in this world. Maybe it feels like to try to do so would be wasting our time. There's such great needs in the world today. In our own community, in the Buffalo-Niagara region, about 13.7% of people live in poverty. In the city of Buffalo, there's 43.3% uh, of children live in poverty. It's the second highest of any major city in the United States. 43.3%. And you think about that, and, even, and on the world stage, it's even worse. 9.2% of people in the world today live on a $1.50 or less per day. I mean, can you imagine that, a, a yearly salary of $547 or less? It's big issues, issues that need resolution. But it's not just poverty that the, it, that's the issue. 
We think about slavery, and uh, we celebrate the fact that our, our country has moved beyond slavery and, and, and moved from that, and we rejoice in that. But we think about that, and we think about between the 13th century and the 19th century, it's estimated that there were about 13 million slaves in the slave trade. Today, it's estimated that there are 40 million people who are living in slavery. Three times the number of people that lived under the, the, the whole period of the slave trade. 40 million people. People who are in the, the sex trade. People who are in uh, forced work situations. People who are in forced marriages. It's an incredible situation. 40 million people. Then you look at pollution. The, according to the World Health Organization, 7 million people die each year from air pollution. According to csave.org, each minute, the equivalent of a garbage load of plastic is poured into the ocean. These are big issues. These are issues that we don't have a lot of control over. These are issues that are caused by corrupt governments, by a mass number of people, by consumerism, by natural disasters. There's so many factors we don't have control over. From a spiritual perspective, there's billions of people in the world today who don't know Jesus. There's thousands in our community, thousands who struggle with addiction, thousands who struggle with mental illness. It can seem like the needs are overwhelming. It, se it could seem like even with our best efforts, we would just be pouring bleach down the drain. It'd just be a drop in the bucket. And it can be discouraging. It can feel like we shouldn't even try. And in the passage that we're looking at today, I think that's exactly how Jesus' disciples felt. Jesus is teaching near the Sea of Galilee, and he's on a mountain. And it says in the text that thousands of people have come to listen to him. 5,000 men. In the book of Matthew, it says that there were also women and children. And so the number could have been up to maybe perhaps 20,000. Incredible number of people. And it's getting to be late in the day. You can't go to a... Uh, restaurant, there's no fast food. And so Jesus asks Philip, he says, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? The reason he asked Philip was because Philip was from this region. Presumably he would have had the resources to know how to know where to get food. And of course, to Philip, this is a laughable question. Jesus, do you see how many people are here? There's thousands of people here. He says, even if you had 200 denarii, that, would only, that wouldn't even allow everyone to get a bite. 200 denarii was the equivalent of 200 days' wages. A denarii was the average uh, worker's daily wage. So it's about seven or eight months' wages. And so you think about that incredible amount of, uh, of money, and of course they didn't have that. It's not like they, they had that available. But even if they had that incredible amount of money to buy the food, it, would only, it wouldn't even be enough for everyone to have a taste, let alone be filled. Then Andrew comes up and says, hey, well, here's what we do have. We don't have 200 denarii, which, which would be a lot, but not enough. But we have is a few loaves and some fish. Now, these loaves and fish were not only low in quantity, but they were low in quality. It says in the text they were barley loaves. Now, barley was something that was the staple of the poor. Barley was something that normal uh, uh, or more wealthy people didn't like. 
It was low in gluten content. It had a nasty taste to it. It wasn't easily digestible. And so if anyone could avoid it, they would avoid barley bread. Uh, the Jewish philosopher Philo once said that barley products are suited for irrational animals and people in unhappy circumstances. Further, the word for fish that's used of this boy's uh, or young man's fish, uh, it's usually in the Bible when the word fish is used, it's the word ictus. But in this passage, there's a different word that's a very rare word, opharion, which is a word that's uh, it's diminutive, which means small. And so what it probably indicates is it's like a small pickled fish, kind of akin to a, probably a little bit larger, but kind of what we think about as a sardine. And you think about it, it's like if you had a party in the summertime and you had a whole bunch of people, 50 people in your backyard, and then you go to the cupboards and all you have is stale bread and sardines. And yet what does Jesus do? Jesus takes what they have and he multiplies it and everybody is filled. They have as much as they want of the bread, much as they want of the fish, and there's 12 basketfuls left over. And I think there's a couple lessons we can learn from this passage. And the first is profoundly practical. We live in a world where there's so many needs around us that it can seem overwhelming. It can be tempting to believe we can't make a difference. It can be tempted to believe that our efforts are pointless. And yet I think this passage shows us that a failure to believe that we can make a difference is a failure to believe that God can make a difference. A failure to believe that we can make a difference is a failure to believe that God can make a difference. I mean, think about what's happening in this passage. Jesus is asking Philip about, uh, you know, providing this food for the people. And he's doing it to test him. Jesus knows what he's going to do. And he's testing him to see, are you going to believe that I am enough? Are you going to believe that I can provide for you? Philip says, I mean, there's no way. There's no way we could get enough food. And yet the maker of the heavens and the earth, the maker of the oceans, the maker of the seas, the maker of all the plants in the universe is standing before them. And yet they, he doesn't believe. I think sometimes we cloak our disobedience in self-abasement. We cloak our disobedience in self-abasement. We think, well, there's a need. I wish I could help. I wish I could make a difference, but I just can't. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough resources. I don't have enough connections. I don't have the skills that I need. I'd like to, but there's no way that I can. And I think sometimes when we do that, it's not a disbelief in our own abilities. It's a disbelief in God's ability to use us. So what is God calling us to do today? What is God calling you to me to do today? What need is he calling us to meet? What problem is he calling us to solve? What injustice is he calling us to fight against? When we're walking forward in the will and the purposes of God, there's nothing that's impossible for us. He can do incredible things through us because he's the God who multiplies the loaves and the fishes and the fish. There's an African proverb that goes like this. If you ever think that you're too small to make a difference, try spending a night in a closed room with a mosquito. God can use the little bit that we have and use it for his glory. And it doesn't mean that we can just go and do whatever we want in our own strength. In, in the end of this passage, it says that the 
people came and were about to make Jesus king by force. And what did Jesus do? He withdrew. Because he wasn't going to be akin to people's desires, people's purposes. He wasn't going to go apart, uh, be a part of man's plans. He was doing the will of the Father. And so we have to be in accordance with the will of the Father. But when we are, God can do incredible things through us. He can use us in incredible ways to meet needs, to solve problems, to correct injustices, and to make difference, a difference in the world. And, and so that's the kind of practical application, real-life practical application. There's a lot of needs in our world. We can make a difference no matter how small our resources may be. But I think there's more to the story than that. This story is more than Jesus just multiplying loaves and fish. More than just doing something that was nice, giving out a free meal. He's not just providing a service for the people. And I think we get a clue of what he's doing by the fact that it says in the text that this occurs right before the Passover. Now, in the book of John, there's three Passovers that are recorded. The first Passover occurs in the context when Jesus is talking about the temple and how the temple will need to be, is going to be destroyed and how it will have to be rebuilt. And he's speaking uh, of his body, who, which would be destroyed, and then how he would rise again. The third Passover occurs at Jesus' death. And here the second Passover occurs in the context of the feeding of the 5,000. Now, remember back to the Passover and what the Passover signified. Uh, in the Passover, you know, God was going to bring this plague on the Egyptians. The angel of death was going to come upon the Egyptians. And the Israelites were told that they were to offer a sacrifice to, to kill a lamb. And they were to put the blood of the lamb over their doorpost. Then the angel would pass over them. And then they were actually supposed to eat of the lamb. Then, after they leave, are delivered from the land of Egypt, they go to the wilderness, and while they're in the wilderness, they're hungry, and they cry out to God, and God gives them manna, or bread, from heaven. Now, in the book of John, we see that Jesus is identified both as the Lamb of God. Remember, John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the Passover Lamb, the one whose blood was shed, and then also, in, in the end of chapter 6, Jesus is going to say that he is the bread of life. That he is the bread that's come down from heaven. And so in this miracle that Jesus is doing, he's not just providing a meal. He's not just saying that I can provide for you. I can give you bread. He's saying, I am the bread. I am the bread of life. I am the one that you need. I am the one who will fulfill you. I am the one who is enough for you. And so when we ask, can we really make a difference? The question we're really asking is, can Christ make a difference in the world? And as believers, we believe that Jesus changes everything. Jesus changes everything. And Jesus offers himself to us, and, and in turn, we can offer Christ to the world. And it doesn't matter what our resources may or may not be. It doesn't matter what our skills may or not may not be. We have Christ to offer to the world, and Jesus changes everything. It reminds me of a passage in the book of Acts where Peter and John don't have the physical resources to meet the needs of a beggar, but they offer the beggar what they do have, and that is Christ. 
Acts chapter 3, verses 3 to 8 says this. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and entering the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to meet physical needs. We should do everything that we can to meet physical needs around us. But even when we don't have the resources to meet those physical needs, we can offer Christ to those around us. We always have something to offer to the world. And a failure to believe that we can make a difference is a failure to believe that God can make a difference. So what difference can Jesus make? Who can imagine? Who can fathom the difference that Jesus makes? What difference can a small church with a few loaves and fishes, a few quarts of soup, what difference can a church like that make? Only God can fathom. What difference can one individual out of 7.6 billion people plus in the world today, what difference can one individual make? Who can fathom? Only God can imagine. 1938, uh, Hitler was consolidating power in Europe. Uh, at that time, he had already annexed Poland. He had already annexed uh, Czechoslovakia. And it was getting really dark and really bad, especially for Jewish people. November 8, 1938 was a very dark night for uh, Jewish people. It was called the Night of the Broken Glass. And on that night, people uh, went through the, through the towns. They burned uh, Jewish synagogues. They destroyed Jewish, Jewish buildings. Uh, they threw, threw things through their windows. It was just a terrible sight. Many people even had to flee their homes and went to refugee camps. Conditions were, were getting terrible. Also, there's a man in, in 1938 named Nicholas Winton. And Nicholas Winton was a stockbroker, and uh, he was a man of considerable means. He had a lot of money, and it, in December of that year, 1938, he was planning on going on a skiing trip in Switzerland. But he received word from a friend who lived in Czechoslovakia and said, hey, uh, I need you to come here. I need your help. I got a special assignment. He said, don't bother bringing your skis. So he decided he was going to cancel his skiing trip and go to Czechoslovakia. And he goes to Czechoslovakia, and he found just a horrible sight. The Jews during that time were put into the, the refugee camps. It was the winter time, and they had hardly anything, only the few things they could grab and take from their homes. And so he decided he was going to do something about it. But there was a lot of obstacles in his way. Somebody, he talked to somebody else who had helped other Jewish people, and they're like, basically, there's nothing set up there. If you want to try, go for it. And so what he did was he rented out a room in a hotel, and he used a hotel room as his kind of uh, headquarters for his operations. And he had uh, parents sign up to send their children uh, back to England. This time, the, the English government wasn't accepting refugees except for children. And even the children, they were only accepting under very specific circumstances. 
So he had to do like mounds of paperwork to make, the, make it possible for children to go back to England. Not only that, uh, in order for the children to go into England, there had to be families, foster families, that were found for the children before they got there. And also there had to be uh, a 50-pound deposit for each child that was going to go to England. But that didn't deter Whitten. What Whitten did was he was still working as a stockbroker, but he put out advertisements in the newspaper, was raising money, and he was trying to convince strangers, basically, to take in these children. And due to his efforts, he was able to rescue 969 children and bring them through. He brought them on trains through the heart of Nazi Germany and to, Eng to England and to safety. One of the most remarkable parts of his story is the fact that he really didn't tell anybody about what happened. Apparently, his wife didn't even know about the things that he had done. The only time that she found out about it and how the story got out was when she found the shoebox in his closet that had pictures and names of the people that he had saved. It's estimated that 6,000 plus people are alive today due to Whitten's efforts. In 2001, Nicholas, uh, there was a book that was written about him, and a couple other books have written, been written subsequently. But the one from 2001 was titled, Nicholas Winton and the Rescue Generation. Save one life, save the world. One person can change the world. I mean, think about all the obstacles that were in his way. Think about all the reasons, uh, the, the, the excuses that he have, could have used why he couldn't do what he did. He had a vacation lined up. He could have said, I'm, you know, I, I'm busy. I got too much going on. He had a busy career. He had all these obstacles. He had the English government who was kind of slow to do the paperwork. He had to find homes for the children. He had to raise all of this money. There were so many different obstacles where he could have said, this is too big for me. I can't make a difference. And yet he walked forward and changed the world. Ladies and gentlemen, we can make a difference because we walk forward in the power, the wisdom, and the strength of the one who multiplied the loaves and the fish. We have partaken of the bread of life and we've discovered that he is enough for us. And we can offer that bread to the world. I'd like to close by reading an old Franciscan blessing that goes like this. May God bless you with this comfort at easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships, so that you may live deep within your heart. May God bless you with anger at injustice, oppression, and exploitation of people, so that you may wish for justice, freedom, and peace. May God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in this world so that you can do what others claim cannot be done. One person can make a difference. It's what we're celebrating tomorrow and tomorrow Martin Luther King Jr. Day. One person can make a difference. And a failure to believe that we can make a difference is a failure to believe that God can make a difference. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you allow us to be a part of your plan, that you take the little that we do have to offer and you multiply it in ways that we cannot imagine, that we cannot fathom. We thank you that you allow us to be a part of that plan. We thank you that you choose to use us 
You don't need us, but you choose to use us for your glory. Lord, today, we pray that we would answer your call. Some of us, maybe God is calling us to meet a need. Some of us, God is calling to fight against an injustice. Some of us, God is calling to solve a problem. Lord, help us to believe that you really can make a difference through us. That our efforts are never wasted. And help us to walk forward in obedience. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.